Welcome to episode 235 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. We have a great show today. We're going to be speaking with Richie Etwaru, who is the chief digital officer of Quintiles IMS. It's a really large healthcare company, and we're going to be talking about the future of healthcare. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to Livestream, which is our live streaming partner, and they will give you a discount on a plan if you go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk. So thank you, Livestream. You guys are great, and we love you. So diving in, Richie Atuaro, how are you today? Hey, Michael, I'm doing fantastic, man. First of all, thank you for having me for a second time, and congratulations on keeping this show going. You've been at this for, what, a couple of years now, and it just keeps getting better and better. More engagement, more content, better guests. Uh, congratulations. A lot of these start and die, but yours keeps getting better. So I'm really thankful to be here. Hey, thank you so much. Well, you know, it's the guests that make it, and I feel so lucky to be able to have conversations like this with folks like yourself. So, Richie, uh, tell us about Quintiles IMS. We're, we're, we're a vendor that's about 50,000 uh, employees, about $8 billion of revenues, and we're specifically per, uh, focused on the life sciences industry. There's two things that are fairly unique about us. Uh, the first is that we operate in four archetypes. Now, three of those archetypes you'd know very, very well. We do information, technology, and services. And in addition to that, we do intelligence as well, which I believe is the fourth archetype. And the second thing is that we're kind of like um, the, the only vendor in this industry that goes through the entire supply chain. From molecule to market, we offer services and, and, and all sorts of stuff inside there. Very unique, exciting industry, and I'm just glad to be here. That's interesting. When you say molecule to market, can you drill in? What, is, what does that mean exactly? So if you think about, about um, the pharmaceutical industry or life sciences industry, uh, the, the product right, is, is, is some sort of drug, some sort of therapy, whether it be a vaccine or a pill or something like that. And that thing goes through a journey that starts with the discovery of a molecule and then eventually bringing it all the way to market and being able to get it for patients to consume, et cetera. So that entire journey, we, journey, we offer services in R&D, in, in compliance, in commercialization, in sample management, all those areas, we're able to stitch the pieces together for our customers. We're kind of like a lifeblood for the industry, right? We're here to enable the industry to move forward as opposed to maybe a point solution that's taking opportunities. And you are the chief digital officer. So what, do, what does the chief digital officer do at a company like Quintiles IMS? Well, I think it's similar to what many chief digital officers do. Uh, it's about, it's about, taking advantage of digital opportunities as well as enabling speed, right? I think speed is the new currency, right? I think every chief digital officer should at a minimum be a chief speed officer because you've got to be able to get this stuff to go very quickly. Um, it partitions into two pieces, right? The first is how do you operate uh, as an organization? Can, this, can the CDO be able to change the way how you operate, whether it's workplace of the future, whether it's new types of, of technologies that you use to be able to do things more effectively. The how is very important, right? So how we operate as a company is part of what I, what I advise and impact. The other is the what do we build, right? The products that we actually bring to our customers, how do we take advantage of digital, et cetera. A lot of that focuses on our next generation P&L 
to make sure that we're building things that are relevant in the future. What's unique about being in a vendor like Quintiles IMS is that we are not the end consumer organization, right? This is not Estee Lauder, right, or Pfizer, et cetera. We're actually servicing those types of end consumer organizations. So at the same time, while we're figuring out how we change and, and, and what we bring to market, we have to be enabling our customers to change as well. Uh, you could think of IBM as a good archetype, right, or a good example of the archetype. Uh, I'm sure Bob Lord at IBM does, does the job the same way, right? How we do what we do. Right. What is it that we provide and how does that enable our customers to change? So this is all within the context of healthcare. yet you do not directly touch patients. You're touching the drug companies and researchers. Is that is that correct as I understand it? This is precise, right? We're the lifeblood to drive the industry forward. If you think about Bloomberg, for example, in financial services, Bloomberg does not necessarily touch the end investor, but they enable the financial services industry to move forward. And that's sort of a good anecdote or a good analogy of how we enable the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry. And, you know, I find it really fascinating that this notion of a chief digital officer within the context of healthcare obviously is a major indicator of the kind of changes that healthcare is undergoing right now, right? I mean, you're rooted in changes in transformation of healthcare. Right, not just the industry, but the actual existence of the capacity for mankind, right? I think, I think healthcare is, is exciting, and one of the reasons why I wanted to be here is because we're going through sort of a cyclical change that, that every industry have gone through. If you're a human being um, on this planet, and specifically in the United States today, when you experience the consumer segment or you experience the financial services segment, and in many cases the transportation segment, and even with government, Things have gotten a little bit more democratized, right? Uh, information is more at your fingertips. You're able to make decisions better. These are more consumer-friendly, customer-friendly industries. Healthcare hasn't necessarily gone through that paradigm, right? And so we're having this sort of this responsibility to make sure that we can bring healthcare, the industry, and move it forward into a place where when I interact with my doctor, it feels exactly like how I interact with, with you know, my banker or, or, or my car a servicing department. Right now, some some government agencies are actually more customer friendly than your doctor or the hospital, right? So it's a big part of that change. There's some macro uh, changes that are going on within healthcare that you may want to think about it. Um, uh, uh, think about this as an insider view, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of excitement around the digital and the wearables, and, and I want to talk about those as well. But I think that's only half of the conversation. The other half of the conversation is what are these macroeconomic structural things that are going on? If you, if you want to package that uh, to be able to discuss them, one is the center of gravity of the industry is changing, right? This has been an industry where, like many other industries, the control was sort of in the middle, right, in the manufacturing. We're seeing that, that center of gravity being distributed out to the edge of the network now where the patients are more empowered right, where the providers are more empowered, where the payers are more empowered. And this is very good for everyone. And everyone's happy about it, including the folks in healthcare, right, because it makes for a better market structure. The second thing is where, where the knowledge and the information and the truth sits, right? Healthcare is moving, just like financial services move, from an industry that had to provide answers to now an industry that has to provide evidence, 
You know, if you think about financial services, I remember about 15, 16 years ago, I was on the phone with my broker and, and, I, and I stopped and realized while on the phone, wait, I know more about this transaction than you, <laughs> right? I no longer want to ask you for the answer. I want to tell you what I think and have you provide evidence uh, to that for me. So healthcare is sort of moving in that direction where you see the democratization of all the information about efficacy of drugs, about best practices, about therapeutic areas being democratized out and now the center is providing evidence. And the last is digital. Um, digital in healthcare is very in, interesting and important, but also some of the dematerialization is going on, right? We've got a lot of assets in this industry, whether it's molecules or whether it's inventory management, these physical assets, that we need a digital layer above it so that we can dematerialize them and start to think about supply and demand and right fitting and right purposing and outcome-based decisions. All these things are ongoing, which makes it very interesting. That's the other half of the debate that when you coupled it with all the things around wearables and, and, and all the rest of things that are going on, that's you see this boiling pot of excitement within healthcare. So with all of these changes that are taking place, what is the, what is the, the, the pathway to making this more distributed and to ultimately changing the relationship between payer, between the insurance companies, between the patients? between the doctors, because it seems that ultimately that's where it ends up. So, so if, if, if you ask, um, what, is, what is the highest percentage of categories that I focus on uh, in the industry? About 60 to 80% of what I focus on is no silos, right? And I know that sounds really cliche. Like we've been, we've been arguing that silos are not good and not, and not great. Uh, for a very long time, but I spent a significant amount of time just removing silos. Silos from individual organizations, as well as silos from the industry, right? How do you bring some of these um, non-familiar stakeholders together to work in an intimate way? And that requires that integration is built, which is a lot around interoperability and a lot around standards and a lot around information sharing. And it also re requires that trust is built so that people could share information in a very trusted way. I believe that healthcare today, right, we have all of the data and all of the experts and all of the invention and R&D needed to move healthcare forward to the next state that it should be in. The issue, specifically in these parts of the world, is that we actually do not collaborate and interoperate with each other in an ecosystem formation so that we can actually share and move things forward. This is a very, very much siloed industry, and I spend a lot of my time going no silos, no silos. Just like Benioff goes no software, we're the no silo people, right? We're taking silos out. Are you thinking about this, when you say uh, removing the silos, are you talking about inside your company? And you're, 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 you're a very large company, right? What, what is your, your revenue? We're about $8 billion in revenue, about 50,000 uh, 50, people, right? We, we are very, very horizontally set up, which means that we've strung all these assets that we've put together on this dimension of molecule to market. But as we go to our customers, which is the first layer of silos that needs to be removed, we look at our customers' organizations, and R&D is very much different in a pharmaceutical company. This is where you discover the drug. This is where you do the clinical trials. This is where you build the evidence. This is where you submit it to the government to get approval. R&D is very, is very different from commercial operations. Commercial operations, which is, yes, we have something now that can save lives and improve lives, and we need to bring it to market. 
How do we build education around that? How do we build delivery networks around that? How do we build sample management, pricing, payer, distribution, all that type of stuff? Those are two very, very specific silos right now in, in a pharmaceutical industry, but if you, in a pharmaceutical company. But if you look at the, at the industry itself, right, you've got the provider area, which are all the hospital networks, the accountable care organizations, the doctor practices. You've got the payer area, which could be large payers like insurance companies or, or those that, that self-insure. Right. You've got a whole area of scientific and academic research. And then you've got the manufacturing side of the industry. And those supply chains really haven't been modernized or optimized for digital commerce today. And I think that's what I mean by taking silos out of the industry. If you think about financial services today, right, financial services, the industry itself, there's a lot of pipelines that have been built inside of the industry to make sure it moves faster, starting with initial things like the DTCC. Right, which were put together by the banks for the banks to be able to help streamline and remove those silos. That's where we are in healthcare today. And, and, and as a vendor that has been able to string the pieces together ourselves, we're able to now help our customers string the pieces together. We have a, an, an interesting question from Twitter, which was actually similar to what I was just thinking about asking you as well. And, and Arsalan Khan says... How are you breaking down silos that were built over a long time within the government? So, so by the government. So, so much of this industry structure has been established over the course of decades, much of it in place by government regulation. And so how do you break down those silos? How do you even begin to do that? Well, I think, I think this is not rocket science per se, but it's difficult, right? It's not difficult to understand, but it's difficult to do, which is the point to the question. Financial services has gone through the same thing. We've seen some of that in the transformation industry. Granted, they're going through it uh, differently today. There are the things that I like to talk about, which are sort of like layer one, which are there, there are no um, regulatory or structural limitations why they just can't happen. Right. So if you think about the basic uh, scenario of you or I going to a doctor, right today, simple things like every time you go to the doctor, you have to fill out your information all over again and many times on a piece of paper. Right. Those are things that you don't necessarily need massive regulatory change to be able to create a string of consistency within the industry to be able to take that out. And there's tons of benefits to that. Right. Apart from the cost and the speed, there's the there's a notion of carried context where different practitioners can be able to do that. So that's sort of the base level. Right. The second level above that are some of the things that I that I like to think about around supply and demand. Right. Um, There are pockets within this industry of therapeutic uh, 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 brands, whether it be drug or vaccines, where there's too much in one area. okay, and they're expiring. And, and they have to be destroyed within compliance rules and laws. And where certain parts of the world, the last billion of the world, for example, has a hard time getting things like antibiotics. Okay. If you think about the last billion of the world, they have cell phones, but not antibiotics. Right. And there's tons of research around this stuff. So there's that second layer where we can start to think about supply and demand and how we right size and right fit supply and demand. And that third layer is when you come up against some of the more structural things. 
right? Which is how do you share patient information across various therapeutic areas or countries so that you can get larger sample pools for clinical trials so that you can be able to take out false positives better and remove variation out of the, out of the therapies that we bring to market. That's where that difficulty comes in, where you start to think about regula- regulations and HIPAA compliance and all that type of stuff. But for the most part, there's so much low-hanging fruit still to be taken out, not because they're not good, smart people here. It's just the timing that the, that the industry is going through the transformation to be able to take out the silos. So taking out these silos, this is not primarily a, this is not a technology issue. This is an issue of what? Why isn't it happening and what needs to be done? Uh, where's the catalyst to make it happen? Yeah, so, so the, the, you're absolutely right. Um, a lot of this technology is the first inch, but the last mile, right? It's the thing that triggers the conversation initially, which is the first inch. And then there's tons of uh, cultural and political and structural and process and governance things that has to happen. And then it becomes the last mile of the implementation, right? A couple of triggers. One is just the general economics of the industry, right? We're seeing a focus on taking cost out, And as a result, that's driving a lot of call for efficiency and standardization and horizontal capabilities. So I think that's the first thing. The second is the call for value. You know, a lot of people talk about the call, the call for cost in healthcare. Not a lot of people talk about the call for value, right? Because the, the power is moving to the edge of the network and you're getting things like patient advocacy groups, right? And outcome based discussions about the efficacy of a drug. Suddenly, we're seeing that value is a conversation. Right fitting a drug to a patient is very, very important. And these are the two levers that are moving that are creating the type of structural tra- strain that's asking every organization, not just pharmaceutical companies, payers, hospitals, et cetera, to look at the operating model and go, hey, maybe I have an operating model that wasn't focused on the right things, what does that look like now? And the answer to that many times is I've got to think about having a more vertically based uh, uh, organizational design or operating model where I have shared services, where I have information exchange, where I have consistency. And these are the things that are triggering that conversation. But tech, first inch, last mile. When you say the change to the healthcare operating model, with which group? Are you talking about hospitals? Are you talking about doctor's offices, insurance companies? Where, where do the changes need to occur? And where are the changes? Do you see the changes happening most, uh, most readily? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of change in, um, or, a, or a lot of VC venture capitalist uh, uh, investment and private equity investment on the delivery side right, which is the doctor's office, the patient experience, uh, the hospital organization, uh, new types of smart devices that may be able to build out orally demand signals um, for, for the industry. So there's a lot of hype and focus in that space. Um, having said that, the back end sort of very important but not a sexy work is starting as well, right, which is around how do you look at clinical trials more effectively? If you think about this industry today, I think the last uh, indicators that I saw, and I didn't, I don't have the specific numbers in front of me, but you can find them. I'll give you ranges. It takes any, anywhere from 10 to 12 years from the moment that you discover a molecule to be able to bring it to market successfully, 10 to 12 years, because of all the clinical trials 
that are required and very important that you have to go through and the processes that you have to go through. But if you think about the actual science that happens in that 10 to 12 years, it could potentially happen within three years, unless you have some sort of longitudinal study that requires six years uh, of a timeline. But a lot of that waste is in manual processes, is in going from one silo to another, and those have to be taken out. By the way, the cost of that 10 to 12, 12 years is somewhere about $2 billion, where it takes about $2 billion to spend to bring a drug successfully to market. If you compare that to something like a car company, maybe Mercedes-Benz, for example, from the time Mercedes-Benz draws the first car to the time you could drive it out of the showroom is probably about three years and maybe half a billion dollars of cost. Right. So there's tons of compression that is starting to happen within these cycles and these timelines. And that's driving great opportunity for those companies that want to be competitive. And at the same time, it's creating a tremendous amount of strain for those companies that want to argue on the wrong side of history. I want to remind everybody that we are speaking with Richie Atwaru, who is the chief digital officer at Quintiles IMS, which is a large provider of how, how uh, to healthcare. Richie, you're a provider of what? Just, just can you summarize that? I... We provide four archetypes of values. Information, which is data, right? So think about that as Bloomberg, okay? Services, which is advisory and consulting and go-to-market. Think about that as PwC. Technology, which is all the operational tools that help from molecule to market. So everything from a clinical trial management system to a CRM system. Think about that as Salesforce, okay? And then intelligence, which are all the insights and early indicators that can help you make better decisions. I don't think there's an archetype for me to give you an example there, but those are the four high-level archetypes that we provide to the life sciences industry at global scale, right? This is an, it's a bit of an unprecedented archetype of vendor. There aren't many industries where there's a vendor that is – this large has this much experience and knowledge of that specific industry and provides these four value archetypes across the entire supply chain. I don't want to talk too much about Quintiles IMS because I don't want it to be an advertising for the company, but that's what we do. But I, yeah, and I think you are unusual, which is why I'm struggling a little bit to, to understand the nature of the company. And I understand why you describe it as the glue because you're providing a combination of services and technology and research support and tools and data. Uh, so, so clearly making the changes that we've been talking about requires economic and structural shifts and changes to the operating model inside the various players of healthcare. But also technology is playing an important role as well. And technology is going to help drive this forward. What are your thoughts on, on that aspect of it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and clearly, given my role and, and some of my passions, this is sort of the, the raw material that I use, so to speak, to help remove uh, the silos, right? Um, I think the first that I would touch on in, in order of priority is AI. Um, you know, and, and when I think about AI, I want to make sure that we partition uh, AI appropriately, right? Um, there, I, I like to think about it as three different categories. There are the things that we know that AI can help us know better. There are things that we don't know that AI can help us find answers. And there are things that we don't know that we don't know as yet, but maybe we should know, 
right? And, and I would be remiss if I didn't credit Donald Rumsfeld for sort of introducing that method of thinking to humanity, right? Um, we are doing a lot of stuff in category one, category two, and quite frankly, starting to pioneer in category three across that entire journey. If you think about things like clinical trials for, for cures to some of, the, some of the complex or orphan diseases that we have today, there's a lot of analytics that has to go into who are the right patient for those trials, right? Where are the right parts of the world to be able to stand up those trials? What is the right cohort set to be able to make sure that you get the best therapeutic outcome uh, uh, for the population of, of the planet? These are all areas where AI could help, whether it's category one, category two, category three, right? The second thing that I think is important here is around IoT and wearables. And here again, we need a certain sense of sobriety, right? I think we get a lot of people that get really excited about things like Fitbit, and, and I get excited about it as well, but we have to understand why we're getting excited about it. If you take a look at all of the wearable devices that we have in healthcare today, and you kind of plot them on a Pareto chart that says, okay, these are the ones that are more, most interesting to diagnosis, and these are the ones that are least interesting to diagnosis, you'll find that unless you have a chronic condition, Things like a Fitbit are really not that helpful to diagnosis. And by the way, if you did have a chronic condition, a Fitbit is a terrible heart monitor because you actually need something that's industrial grade, right? So in the space of IoT, which is really more about getting these demand signals and supply signals by monitoring and censoring the ecosystem, we have not miniaturized some of these really crucial measurement instruments as yet. Right. Things that can measure, you know, the acidity of your bile, for example. Right. These are still still big uh, instruments. I don't know. If, I don't even know if that's worth measuring, but I, I'm giving you an example. Right. We're not going to be able to miniaturize all these things down to be able to wear them. And quite frankly, if we can't, we're all going to be walking around like Inspector Gadget anyway, with 40 things on me at the same time. So we have to be very sober and think about censoring of our environment, whether it's embedded in the bed, in the steering wheel of the car, et cetera, et cetera. And the other thing we have to be sober about is how will these actually get distributed into the network? You know, if you think about the fact that a lot of these really important measuring devices are still in Quest Diagnostic offices or in hospitals, and we really haven't miniaturized the important ones as yet, you start to ask yourself, well, okay, what's the delivery model here, Right. We have, uh, what, 60, 70,000 pharmacies in the United States of America where everyone goes in and they're in a semi-healthcare format already. Does the pharmacy become the smallest wearable but the largest hospital? Because you can, every time you go into the pharmacy, you might be able to be scanned. With things like ATMs, I think there's 400, 500,000 ATMs in the United States of America that is already solved for identity and security where you might be able to distribute different types of censoring to those edge points, right? This is the type of thinking that I think falls in that category of the sobriety that we need to think about for IoT. The other two I would talk about are VR, AR, and blockchain, but maybe you want to come up with some air here before we cover those two. Yeah, you know, the IoT and wearables issues is quite interesting. We recently had David Edelman, who is the chief marketing officer of Aetna, on CXO Talk, and he was describing some programs they have to give incentives to their members to use things like Fitbit. And because it, even though there are issues with it, like you described, it still can give you greater awareness and focus and focus your attention on 
your health care and your well-being to avoid getting sick. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point, right? If you think about some of the thought leadership work I've done in the human API, right? The, 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 the promise of wearables is to move the high level uh, sort of offering design of the industry of one away from care and towards cure, right? Um, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Um, a lot of these early wearable devices, what they're doing is they're actually not interventions in biology or in chemistry. The intervention is in psychology. And you could argue that in some ways, psychology is becoming the super science of healthcare, right? Which are these behavioral changes that are driven from this stuff. Having said that, not everybody argues that, right? Most people are arguing about the fact that you can have this stream of data that comes off your body. Think about things like quantified self so that now you can think very, very, very much more carefully about what therapeutic areas you might be want to avoid and be careful around, right? What are things that may work for you? And then, and then there's arguments around demand signals, right? Right now, the industry is set up in such a way where it's a very supply-based industry, which is, uh, you know, treatments are manufactured because you believe that people are sick in this area and there's data around it, right? Or you believe that they're suffering in this area and there's, 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 there's um, data around it. But what wearables present is an opportunity to go out to the consumer and get the demand signals about what sicknesses are really there and what, what behavioral changes people want to make and what are the ones that they don't want to make where they prefer to be hedonistic and then have drugs to be able to help them right? These are the arguments. I think we're seeing the early behavioral changes of the Fitbit. That's a really good example, right? And you could water that down to listen, if you just eat well and exercise, that's great. But we have, we're hedonistic human beings. So I think that helps. But the true promise is in the demand signals and in the supply side of it. But the problem with this, of course, you're absolutely right. But the problem or the challenge is the, are the economics of it. Because in an environment where we have this intervention of psychology, as you were just describing, where people are more focused on preventive care using, you know, Fitbits and so forth, where, where are the economics to drive that? Because it doesn't cost anything. Sure, you have to buy a Fitbit. But if you're, you know, taking a walk and watching your health, there's, no one's making any money on that. So where are the economic incentives? Yeah, so if you think about the P&L uh, of the industry as an aggregate, right? Um, yes, it, no, no one's making revenues, but there's a specific archetype of, of, of companies in the industry that's actually saving costs, right? So on the payer side, on the insurer side of this, you're incentivized to be able to have people change their behavior so that you don't have a waste, uh, wasteful cost that you have to pay for, similar to, uh, to automotive, right? At one point, you, you know, if you took a, a safety training course, right? Your premiums would go down, right? Uh, I remember when I was growing up as a kid, I used to have a club on my car. I don't know if you remember one of those, a red thing that you expanded in your steering wheel, right? If you had one of those, you automatically qualified for 5% discount. My first startup licensed monitor that I did, it was monitoring driver's records of trucking companies and trucking companies were able to get a discount from, from their insurers because their drivers were monitored, right? Same concept here in healthcare, which is a lot of this is not about you know, who pays for it, it's who avoids the cost, right? So if you have someone, to the example that you were sharing earlier, who is a little bit more healthy, 
right, who maybe does not have that corn muffin in the morning, but maybe has some fruits instead because you've looked at the calorie count and you realize that corn muffins have like 400 calories in it, which is exactly what happened to me when I first used my Fitbit, right? I was like, oh, corn muffins must be safe. Um, that The benefit to that is actually the payer. The benefit to that is the insurer. Yes, I benefited as a person, but from an economic perspective, there's that whole segment of the industry, which are the insurers and payers that would benefit from it. So I'd be interested uh, to see who other than Aetna, which falls into that category, is taking uh, uh, the first step in making sure that we get as much as we can from the psychological behavioral changes that can come out of this fusion of technology and psychology to help fill the gap that biology and chemistry could not have filled in healthcare. So Aetna, as a payer, has an economic incentive to support its members in terms of preventive, let's say preventive wellness. Exactly. Humana is doing a lot of this as well. That's another really good example. I'm sure there are others that don't come to mind. But that's only a part of the overall value chain. So you have an incentive there for wellness. But what about in other parts of the system where there's an incentive for sickness? Yeah. So, and that's where we go back to the conversation that I had earlier, right? Around whether the wearables that we have today are industrial grade enough to be able to be used uh, to make, um, you know, true therapeutic treatment adjustments, right? For, for, from 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 a doctor perspective, for say, uh, you know, much like you have, um, you know, an example of a Fitbit, which you could argue is is sort of a a low grade heart monitor, if I may. There are industrial grade medical devices for people with a chronic condition to monitor their heart, right? There are industrial grade uh, medical devices to monitor activity of the brain and, and, your, and your posture and, and, and things in your spine, et cetera. Medtronic does a ton of things in this area, right? The issue is we have two different categories of wearables right now, right? They're sort of the consumer grade which is available to the masses, and that's driving a little bit of behavioral changes, which I think is important, and we need to extract as much as we can from that. But then, but then there's the industrial grade, which is largely now just, just for those with chronic conditions. You'll see a blending of those lines, and I think there's a lot more miniaturization that's going to happen, which will end up being censored inside, uh, inside of our existing surroundings. You know, I'll just, I, I want to move on to some other technologies, but I'll just mention one last point about Wearable. So I got an Apple Watch at the end of last year, and I started getting these notifications that I thought were like spam from the watch saying, hey, you know, your heart rate was, was high at this particular moment. And I started looking at it more closely, and I realized that, in fact, my heart rate was elevated, and it turned out I had an underlying condition. It was a thyroid condition. It's fine. It's you know, not a big deal. I'm, I'm okay. But the point is that the Apple Watch alerted me to a real medical condition that I had otherwise, I had no, I experienced no symptoms. It's yeah, extraordinary. I, I think, yeah, no, I, I think there's, there's a couple of, of examples like that, right? You're not the only one. Maybe there's a thousand of examples like that across the industry. But, but I think the, 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 the sensors themselves are going to have to evolve to a level of precision where that may be at industrial scale. Because while in your case, there was actually an issue, the question is how many cases are there where there was not an issue and it was a false positive and we're driving hypochondria, 
to an already strained system as opposed to you, which turned out to be a very positive case, right? So I think we have to be very careful about how we list the positive cases because they're great and I'm, I'm thankful for you that it happened. But at the same time, there's 10 times false positives that are happening that is creating hypochondria. And, 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 and in the work uh, uh, that I've done in the thought leadership space around the human API, we talk quite a bit about how do you triangulate between various data sources, right? So right now, um, if I had my Apple Watch on, it would probably alert me that something's wrong because I'm on this show and my heart is running at 5x times what it would usually run, right? But, you know, if, if you were to look at my calendar, you would see that this show was on my calendar and you look at that and go, okay, I know why his heart is freaking out. It's because he's on CXO Talk, right? So it's that interoperability, which goes back to what I talked about, removing the silos. It's that ability to, to interoperate and triangulate against the stuff to take the false positives out. There's a, there's a huge issue of hypochondria that is lurking in the background of some of these devices. I love it. I mean, you don't hear about that. You hear about, you know, we need to be aware of our health. And at the same time, yes, we're driving hypochondria. I love it. Um, so, so Richie, let's jump to some other technologies and very, very, very briefly talk about uh, AR and augmented reality and virtual reality. But I say very briefly because we don't have that much time left and I definitely want to talk about blockchain. So in AR, VR, there's a couple of categories. One is in medical training and research. And if you look at what um, Dr. Shafi Ahmed is doing, if you don't know him, you should get him on the show. I mean, this guy is taking training and research to a whole different level. He's on my Facebook. I think you are as well. I could connect you guys. The second is in neurosciences, right? Um, I believe uh, in, this, in this statement that the brain is probably one of the sickest organs in the human body. We just haven't really diagnosed that as, as yet, right? I think there are people like, like Arsha and, and Milin Kamkokar who are doing a lot of work in this space with Singularity University. The other is in just very basic psychology behavior, right? Um, I, see, I see Robert Scoble using VR all the time to play games and, and get all these experiences. Those things are being transferred to post-traumatic stress disorder, those things are being transferred to phobias. Those things are being uh, transferred to, to um, um, Alzheimer's or autism, right? So there's a lot of opportunity there, but you said we're just going to touch on that very briefly. But we want to touch on blockchain briefly just in healthcare, and then maybe we can go broadly on blockchain outside of healthcare. Just in healthcare, right? Blockchain is a trust protocol, not necessarily a cost protocol or a speed protocol. There's tons of need for trusted relationships between healthcare stakeholders to share information today so that we can start to unlock some of the power. And I think there's going to be a lot of value there, particularly in healthcare where the information is so sensitive, right? And so you have to make sure that you have a strong protocol of encryption and privacy and security and trust around it. I think blockchain is going to probably going to impact healthcare more than, than it will help, than it will impact consumer grade uh, companies or, or, or transportation companies. Obviously, there's a distracting conversation around Bitcoin and financial services, but we can deal with that in, the next, in your next question. Yeah, so, so, so please elaborate. You say uh, blockchain is a trust protocol, and obviously in healthcare, all of our data is private and intensely personal. And so how can blockchain help support and benefit healthcare? 
So I think, I think we have to unpack um, the blockchain protocol uh, a little bit. Um, and I don't want to repeat what came off of my TED talk, but I'll, I'll steal bits and just drop it inside of here, right? Um, the first thing uh, we need to think about when we think about blockchain is to recognize that Bitcoin is the blockchain what AOL chat was to the internet, okay? It's the first instantiation of the protocol, but certainly not the most interesting, right? Inside of the blockchain protocol uh, is a construct of keys and encryption, and we can get into that maybe in the comment section uh, if needed, that allows us to be able to look at a data set and very easily at low cost and very quickly know whether that data set was tampered with. And by tampered with, I mean someone went in and changed something that they didn't like in the data set to something that they like, right? And today, we as a civilization, we look at all data sets and we go, hmm, I'm not sure if I can trust it. I have to go to an intermediary in order to trust it. If you needed my driver record and I gave my driver record to you, you can't tell very easily whether I removed the speeding that I had when I was 21 or not. It's very difficult. So you have to go to an intermediary, which is the Department of Motor Vehicles, in order to get that. Same thing if you were to buy a house. You have to get the title in order to see who owned the house and what changes were made to it. If I gave you the title to my home, you wouldn't trust it. You would have to go to a title company, right? So we live today as a species where data cannot be easily, easily categorized as this was tampered with and this wasn't tampered with. That's what blockchain does, is allows us to easily identify data sets that were tampered with. Now, it runs on a distributed protocol, which means that multiple stakeholders that are somewhat adjacent to each other can run in industry chains, right? If we look at the real estate industry, you might think the mortgage company, the title company, the bank, the owner, you know, that the architect can all run in a chain. So that now that the information is, is uh, immutable, everyone can share it and people can know when it's being edited, et cetera. That's the, that's the foundation of it. How does that impact healthcare? We can talk about that. How does it impact financial services? How does it impact commerce on a whole? There's a lot of things that we can talk about, cozy and economics, Miller's equilibrium theory of how we actually start to increase trust in transactions to be able to bring supply and demand to a place where it's virtually liquid. Well, we have about three minutes left. And so I think uh, if you would summarize the impact or potential impact of blockchain on healthcare, that would be really quite, quite interesting and very relevant. Yeah. So I think, I think when we think about healthcare and blockchain, what we have to think about, we have to go back to this concept of no silos, right? We are removing silos from this industry to move healthcare forward. And in order to remove silos, one of the first things that you have to have in place, right? Again, technology is the first inch and the last mile of the transformation. One of the first things you have to have in place is information sharing, right? We ought to be able to share information across the silos. And the reason why we cannot share information at industrial strength as we would like to today is quite, quite um, complex. Part of it is security. Part of it is privacy. And part of it is trust, okay? Now, the security and privacy, privacy blockchain solves for within the contract of the protocol, but the outcome is that now you can trust the data and anyone can look at other people's data and trust it, right, on a permission-based network. So if you think about um, 
molecules that are discovered within pharmaceutical companies, right? If you think about the top 10 pharmaceutical companies in the world, they all find molecules in order to, so to solve specific disease states or therapeutic areas, but they may not have experts in those areas. So I might be looking at oncology only, but I may find something in rheumatoid arthritis, right? Or I might be looking at derm only, but I'll find something in the neurosciences, right? All of those are sitting within siloed shelves within each of those 10 pharmaceutical companies. Imagine the opportunity to take just from top 10 pharma, all those molecules, put it in a place where it could be shared and trusted, and then have all of the experts that are multi-domain <laughs> now look at it and go, wow, you guys found something that we've been looking for for the longest while. And we understand it. You guys found it and you didn't understand it because you're not experts in that therapeutic area. That's the type of market restructuring of supply and demand in a very liquid way to be able to think about how do we actually scale this industry up and move it, and move it forward. And that's where blockchain comes to play. We've got about literally about a minute left. And in that last minute, please offer us your prescription for how this all comes together. I mean, this is all of this healthcare stuff is so complex, but you're, you're in the middle of it. And so in one minute, can you boil it down and share your, your policy advice? Let's, let's put it that way, policy advice or other advice for how to make this better. Well, I think, I think first of all, um, I think we have to get the right style, tone, and delivery around healthcare. I think a lot of the people that are not intimate to the industry looks at it and goes, oh, my God, look at that industry. It's so terrible, right? I think we've got to recognize that it's just a sequential uh, issue of which industry is going through the, democratiz the, the, the democratization, right? This is, this is not because no one wanted to do it. This is just the sequence by which it happened. I think that's the first thing, right? I think the second, it goes back to those two halves that I talked about. There's a lot of people who are doing a really, really interesting things on the West Coast in the country or some of the other innovation centers like Tel Aviv that don't necessarily understand the hard sciences of healthcare, and I think those pieces need to come together. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of healthcare uh, uh, doctors and experts start to now go into entrepreneurship. We're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs starting to pay attention to the biology and the chemistry. I think that's the second thing. The third is we have to be able to scope the problem. The problem that sits right in front of us is silos. That's it. If we can get that piece out, we might be able to scale. Okay. Wow, what a fast 45 minutes that has been. We have been talking with Richie Atuaro, who is the Chief Digital Officer of Quintiles IMS. Richie, thank you so much for being here on episode number 235 of CXO Talk. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. And thanks for the viewers. I look forward to the comments. And everybody, thank you for watching. We have two shows next week. So go to cxotalk.com slash episodes and take a look and please join us. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.